Welcome to St James, a Scottish Episcopal Church in Leith. This podcast is an edited recording from our Sunday morning service held on November 19th, 2023. For news and information and to find out how to join us, please visit stjamesleith.org.uk. reading is from Thessalonians chapter 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons brothers and sisters you do not need to have anything written to you for you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When they say there is peace and security then sudden destruction will come upon them as labour pains come upon a pregnant woman and there will be no escape. But you, beloved, are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light and children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then, let us not fall asleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who are drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has destined us not for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with him. Therefore encourage one another, and build each other up, as indeed you are doing. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the Church. morning is taken from Matthew chapter 25 verses 14 to 30. Glory to Christ our Christ Saviour. Savior. For it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents, see? I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of of your master. 
And the one with the two talents also came forward saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents, see? I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master replied, you wicked and lazy slave. You knew, did you, that I reap where I do not, did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with the ten talents. For to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the gospel. Good news for all. Praise to you. Loving God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his words of wisdom, his teaching, his prophetic voice. So open our hearts to hear how this parable of the talents impacts our world today. And open our hearts to the way of truth and justice <clears throat> and peace. Amen. <clears throat> so today's uh, gospel <coughs> passage is uh, hugely significant to me personally, sort of a seminal passage really, um, because it taught me how our cultural baggage um, that we carry, how it impacts on our view of scripture, and how we can actually, um, it really does show uh, how we interpret it. And the reason, I think, is from our culture, everything that we're brought up in, we read scripture from the top down, from a position, really, of relative affluence um, and relative power. And that was something that wasn't the case for most of Jesus' uh, listeners. And as a result, we, we sort of completely domesticize Jesus' teachings to fit it into our situation and into our worldview. So the parable of the talents, you may well have uh, heard this interpretation that I'm going to give. Um, it's increasingly gaining uh, traction among biblical scholars, particularly the liberation theologians and uh, somebody called William Herzog that wrote uh, a book about the parables as subversive uh, speech. And basically, he argues that a number of parables, not just this one, quite a few of the parables, are not a vision of God's glory, but in fact, is Jesus um, outlining how the system, how the systems of his world worked that served the interests of the, uh, the ruling classes, the elites. And remember, he was in a world um, of the Roman Empire and where to speak uh, against it was an act of treason. 
and uh, the punishment uh, was crucifixion. Crucifixion was something that if you spoke, it wasn't for the common criminal, it was if you spoke against the Roman Empire. And I first came across uh, this um, probably before uh, this came out as, as part of my theological training in India. I worked in rural Andhra Pradesh amongst Christians who came from the untouchable caste, poor peasant farmers working at subsistence level. And we would travel around uh, the villages and we'd teach uh, the Bible, we'd pray for them and provide medicines and we'd go from village to village. And one day I was teaching the parable of the talents along what was then the traditional interpretation that we all have gifts and we need to use them uh, to the full. And if we do, we'll be given more. If we don't use them, then God will not be best pleased in other words, in, in the parable, the good guys are the two servants that gain the interest on their talents, and the bad guy is the servant that buries the talent uh, um, in the ground, who clearly doesn't fulfill his potential. And the first issue with that is that talent um, was money. It wasn't our, our giftings. And it is quite a neat interpretation and, and, and not a bad lesson for us to learn. In other words, don't waste your potential. However, if you read the gospel, there are huge uh, difficulties with the interpretation, and God does not come out uh, particularly well. Um, for instance, uh, the master, God, is described as a hardened man, harvesting where he has not sown and gathering where he has not scattered seed. God also, uh, later on, encourages putting money lent into a bank to gain interest, which goes against... Uh, the teachings of the Torah. And finally, God throws the, this servant away who bears the, the money, a punishment that seems completely disproportionate. Um, after all, he does protect the master's money and he does actually give it back. So this description doesn't seem to reflect a loving God and certainly doesn't reflect uh, the expression of God in Jesus. But because of my ingrained worldview, I couldn't really see beyond this interpretation, and I plowed um, on anyway, trying to rationalize as you do all the tricky bits. I don't know if you've ever done that. Someone's come up to you and says, how, how come this says this in the Bible? And you, and you sort of rationalize it uh, um, somehow. Um, but I was interrupted with incredulity and confusion as uh, one after another said, do you really think the master is God? And I rather tentatively responded, why, yes, uh, who, do, who do you think the master is? And they answered, he is the exploitive landlord who bleeds the people dry. In other words, uh, the parable is describing the type of landlord that they were all too familiar with. And it never crossed their mind that Jesus was describing the kingdom of God. Instead, they saw it as the perfect description of how things were operating in their world, where landlords often absent would be the middlemen to ensure large amounts of money, uh, large amounts of the peasants' earnings came back to them. And it reflected a world where, as it says in the passage, for all, to all those who have, more will be given. And they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, 
even what they have will be taken away. I mean, surely that goes against pretty much everything in Jesus' teaching. So for them, he was not describing the kingdom of God, but an unfair system loaded against them. And so the whole parable just literally switches, turns uh, completely upside down, and it began to make sense to me as I reflected on it, particularly when you consider that 99% of first century Palestine was living at subsistence level, and the 1% were the possessed the majority of the land and the wealth. So the rural population in Judea and Galilee was already under significant stress after paying taxes to both Rome and the temple. <coughs> and the added exploitation of the landowners was the last straw. So I just want to give you a little bit of uh, context of the economics of first century Palestine. Uh, the great, there were great households, large households, that really controlled the economics of farming. They controlled the harvest, the storage, the redistribution, and the export of goods. So the farmers brought their crops to the master of these households, and they received a very, very low price for their crops. And the aristocrats, as they were really, would employ retainers who would oversee the work of the farmers, often making loans at a high interest so that the destitute farmers could buy the seeds to plant the crops. So they too were part of a system that exploited the poor for the benefit of the rich elite. And it's probable that the three servants were trusted retainers of their master, the head of a large household. The wealthy master assigns to his three retainers proportions of his assets, probably according to their status. In the, house, in the household hierarchy, so that they could then earn more money for him. So the first two retainers go about their task with zeal, making money for their master, but also making money for themselves and great, gaining great kudos, which in turn influences their household rankings. They are effective exploiters of the peasants and deemed trustworthy because they increase wealth in line with the master's expectations. The third servant instead buries his money, not only defying his master's wishes, but exposing the whole unjust system by contrasting his actions with the previous uh, servants. And he tells the master courageously, I knew you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, and gathering where you have not gathered seed. So he exposes the master, but deliberately shows himself to be honorable by returning to the master what he has. And the judgment on him is immediate and vicious, a classic attack on what I would say a whistleblower, a prophet, a truth teller. The servant is vilified, shamed, humiliated, and called a wicked and lazy servant. And then, as I said uh, previously, the master further exposes his greed by saying he should have given it to the bankers, the tapasites, who were merchants who worked with capital investment uh, ventures. The master is completely going against the obligations of the Torah, which stipulates 
that the wealthy should lend to the poor without exacting interest. So what happens to the whistleblower? He is banished to a dark world of exclusion, poverty, and fear. The Bible calls it gnashing of teeth, the sound of somebody in deep pain and anguish. So consequently, with this interpretation, the hero of the story is the third servant, who by digging a hole to bury the aristocrats or master's talents, takes the money out of circulation so it cannot be used to exploit more peasants through crippling loans, uh, which often led to dispossession of the land. The third servant is using a classic piece of passive resistance to dissociate himself from an exploitative system. He's clearly reached a point where his conscience will not allow him to continue, whatever the cost. And the whistleblower is no fool, he knows the cost. He acts alone and is vulnerable and isolated. He will lose his livelihood and end up living like the poor. And I think there are times where you and I uh, are asked often very subtly to collude in systems and structures that in our hearts we know are not right. And this parable invites us to have the courage to say no, to step aside, not play the game, but at the same time it warns us that there will be a cost and that we need to weigh that cost carefully. And uh, people have come to me pastorally uh, in situations like that, and I always say, what support have you got? What, are you in a union? Are you? Because I know what the cost is to make sure that if they do decide to make that decision, that they have support for them. So Jesus is warning his disciples of the persecution and costs of not playing the game and exposing the truth of what is really going on beneath the surface. He's saying you will be thrown out, you will be discredited, you will be marginalized and shamed, just like he was going to be. He knew as he headed towards Jerusalem that he would be confronting the powers, the Roman Empire and Jewish power, and that there would be cost, which would end up uh, as crucifixion. So this parable, I think, is a much more powerful passage. You see how domesticated we potentially make it into talents, which again is a good message. But I think this is much more powerful and relevant uh, to our world today. Because in, uh, you can pick up the papers and there's not a day where you can't read about how whistleblowers are being closed down, discredited, vilified, and marginalized. Pretty much in every profession. You see it in the church, um, with the whole abuse scandals, you see it medical profession in hospitals where doctors have exposed bad practice, you see it in banking, you see, you, I've seen it in teaching, in pretty much every institution, um, whistleblowers who are exposing really what's going on are marginalized. Um, and, the, and the high profile ones would obviously be somebody like Edward Snowden and Julian Assange, who exposed what was really going on at the highest levels of government. And you see how they've been completely marginalized. And I want to look at, uh, and I'll probably go a little bit longer because of what's going on in our world, um, in Israel, Palestine, and I think it deserves uh, that space, really. 
I want to look at an example uh, in the media because I think the media infects everything and influences how we think and what we believe to be true and feels particularly relevant in terms of the Palestine-Israel uh, conflict. And uh, I'm just going to ask if you would put up on uh, the screen um, some tweets. And the example concerns a young Jewish reporter called Emily Wilder. And I wanted to show how this, scape this uh, um, parable relates to one example. I could find about 20 examples. And Emily Wilder was a young Jewish reporter who joined the Associated Press organization, a big international press, and after only 16 days, she was fired for bias for her social media accounts. And she was never told which one account it was or why she was fired. Um, and if you look through, there's not that many, but if you look through the social media accounts, they're pretty, they're not really very controversial. And I want to sort of go through them. Because what they do do, though, is they expose what's happening beneath the surface. So the first one was, is a New York Times edited abstract. Um, and I, a lot of this information comes through the Washington Post that have done some research, uh, did some investigation into this. And the first one, she uh, retweeted this, and it showed how uh, something had been redacted. And as you can see there, the original thing said, the police entered the compound and Gaza militants fired rubber tip bullets. Anger was already building up in response to rockets fired towards Jerusalem and the looming expulsion of Palestinian families from their homes. Israeli police fought with Palestinian protesters in an escalation of violence in a week of increasing um, tension, that should be. And you can see, without a word being changed, how the whole meaning has been changed by redaction. So then we read, Gaza militants fired rockets towards Jerusalem. Israeli police fought with Palestinian protesters in an escalation of violence in an increasing week of uh, tension. And again, uh, you can see how the editing of news can really impact how we view a situation. The next uh, one was a retweet from a producer from Al Jazeera News uh, that she put on and said, if your reporting on Israel-Palestine looks like a ping-pong game, this happened on, on the Israeli side, this happened on the Palestinian side, with zero context, analysis, history of the big picture, then it's bad journalism and you are doing your audience a disservice. Now, I think we'd all pretty much agree with that. But actually, it is exposing by a lot of how the Western media is actually reporting this sort of ping-pong game, this side did that, this side did that, without looking at the bigger context. And the third one was a tweet that she did, um, which is, was a few days before she, she was fired. And this is the one that probably uh, was the one that got her sacked. It said, objectivity feels fickle when the basic terms we use to report news implicitly stake a claim. So using Israel and never Palestine, or war and not siege and occupation, are political choices, yet the media make those exact choices all the time without being flagged up as biased. So there are certain words that are being used. Um, if, you, if you compare Al Jazeera news 
and some of the mainstream news, you'll see that certain words are never used um, or they've been literally edit, edited out um, of the picture. And then the final one I'm going to put on here is this it was her response to being fired. It's devastating, of course. I love journalism, and part of what I think makes me such a capable, powerful journalist is how much I care about the people I write about, particularly the marginalised. That's why I joined the Associated Press, and they saw me as capable. This is, of course, a really hard situation, and I'm not sure what's going to happen next. So there's, there's the impact on somebody who's exposing what's happening underneath the surface. And I believe that as we see these horrendous images in Gaza of hospitals being destroyed, babies dying in front of our eyes, if you can bear to watch it, uh, it's so bad that, you, that actually it's almost impossible to watch at times. Doctors imploring us to help. The list should go on. It is surely time to raise our collective voice to call for a ceasefire. But apparently, even the word ceasefire is now seen as a political word. And the two uh, conversation I had, uh, certainly with a uh, bishop, um, that it's seen as potentially anti-Semitic. Now, that, 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 you see, the bar has been um, uh, changed. And I think it's time for us to condemn the war crimes on both sides, but also to name truth and to say words like apartheid, to say words like occupied territory, ethnic cleansing, where they are appropriate. And I want to uh, add here also that we use the word anti-Semitism appropriately. Anti-Semitism is abhorrent, as all forms of racism, should, and, and it should be condemned. And I'm also very aware of the vulnerability of many Jewish people um, who are feeling, with what is hap uh, happening, a real sort of existential fear of what is going on. But anti-Semitism should not be equated with criticism of the actions of the State of Israel, and that's what's been happening, who have weaponized the, these words to silence both Jewish and many, many Jewish voices and other voices who oppose these policies. And perhaps the most emotive word of all is the word genocide. And you might think that that is going a step too far, but here, here is a report, a statement from 36 rapporteurs. And a rapporteur is an independent, um, appointed expert uh, by the hum United Nations Human Rights Council to follow and report on human rights in different areas in the world. And 36 have been in, into Palestine, and this is a statement a few days ago. There is increasing evidence of genocidal incitement, overt attempt, intent to destroy the Palestinian people, indiscriminate attacks resulting in colossal death toll, and many of us have already raised the alarm about the risk of genocide. We are deeply disturbed by the failure of government to achieve an immediate ceasefire. We are profoundly concerned uh, about the support of certain governments for Israel's strategy and failure of the international system to mobilize to prevent 
this genocide. And I think that's what, as for us to raise awareness, we've got to look at the independent uh, uh, figures, try and discern um, what is real, because there's a huge amount of disinformation coming about. Um, and as I said, my concern is that if we cannot even call for a ceasefire without this, the word ceasefire being seen as political, so we, I think the word we now use uh, that, that's acceptable, humanitarian pause, I mean, that suggests that, that we can pause it and then continue it after the humanitarian aid has gone in. Um, it seems that as I said, a morally bankrupt position to be in. And this collective voice is growing all over the world and very, very strongly among Jewish people. And the Jewish Judaism, the one thing about Judaism is it was always able to critique from the inside. It's always had the prophets. And there are many, many Jewish voices that are really... Um, going against what the Israeli state is doing at the moment, who are resisting and seeing through the narrative given and who are demonstrating for peace and justice. And I'm, I have gone on a longer time today, but I just, it, I think it, as I said, it deserves uh, this. And I believe as Christians who profess to follow the greatest whistleblower, the greatest truth-teller of them all, that we should actually join this collective voice which starts with a call for a ceasefire. Amen. So our response in the prayers today is listen, Lord, which Rachel taught us at the beginning of the service, expressing our prayerful longings, which aren't always easy to put into words. Let us pray. Loving God, we pray for this your world, divided in so many ways. Please bless all those whose lives are being devastated in current conflicts and power struggles. in Palestine and Israel, in Ukraine and Russia, in Sudan, in Afghanistan. We pray for those in positions of power and influence, seeking to portray everything in a polarized way that they may see the error of their ways and learn to seek the truth. And we pray now for all those daring to speak truth to power. Have mercy on us, O Lord. Have mercy on us. 
pray for our country, for its leaders and its people, for those with much, for those with little, and for those doing without. We pray for those in positions of power and influence here, that they would seek to build rather than divide, and that they would want to seek out the truth and make it known. And we pray for all those people daring to seek the truth and to speak the truth in their words and their actions. May we be counted among them. Have mercy on us, O Lord. Have mercy on us. our city and our community here in Leith and for your church here for all of the people who make up St James's thank you for each other please help us as we try to discern what you are calling us to do and to be here and help us to encourage one another and to build each other up. Have mercy on us, O Lord. Have mercy on us. Pray now for those we know, our family and friends who may be in particular need of God's blessing at this time. And we pray too for those we don't know, for those who may be lonely or alone, that you would bless them and bring them a knowledge of your presence. And we bring ourselves before you and ask that you would inspire us not to collude, but to seek out the truth and make it known. Equipped with faith and love and hope.
For as Paul says, we are all children of light and children of the day. Have mercy on us, O Lord. Have mercy on us. Worship and praise belong to you, author of all being. Your power sustains, your love restores our broken world. You are unceasingly at work bringing order from chaos and filling emptiness with life. Christ, raised from the dead, proclaims the dawn of hope. He lives in us that we may walk in light. Your Spirit is a fire in us, your breath is power to purge our sin and warm our hearts to love. And as children of your redeeming purpose, freed by him who burst from the tomb and opened the gate of life, we offer you our praise with angels and archangels and the whole company of heaven singing the hymn of your unending glory. Please stand. Glory and thanksgiving be to you, God, our Creator, for the gift of your Son born in human flesh. Christ is your holy wisdom, existing beyond time, present at creation. And through Christ you revealed yourself to the world and bring your saving work to its completion. Obedient to your will, he died upon the cross, and by your power you raised him from the dead. He broke the bonds of evil and set your people free to be his body in the world. And on the night when he was given up to death, knowing that his hour had come, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And at supper with his disciples, he took bread and offered you thanks. He broke the bread and gave it to them, saying, Take, eat, this is my body broken for you. And after supper he took the cup, he offered you thanks, gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant. It is poured out for you and for all that sins may be forgiven. Do this in remembrance of
body and blood. And reminding us of your sacrifice. And we ask that you would give us wisdom to discern what is true and not true. And courage to speak truth and the compassion to empathise with those who suffer so that we act in the cause of justice and peace. Amen.